Hello all, my name is Milana Hazen, Associate Executive Director of The Blue Card. I welcome you to the latest episode of Stories of the Holocaust, Overcoming Historical Trauma. We're honored to welcome Dr. Giselle Sikowitz from Jerusalem, Israel. Dr. Sikowitz is a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau and is originally from Hust in the Carpathian Mountains, which was originally in Czechoslovakia, then Hungary, and is now in modern day Ukraine. She immigrated to the United States in 1948, where she earned a doctorate in psychology and later moved to Israel to be closer to her three children, 21 grandchildren and numerous great grandchildren. Dr. Sikowitz is one of the most sought after Holocaust educators. One of her most recent notable moments is meeting with President Biden at Yad Vashem to discuss rising anti-Semitism in the United States. It is a pleasure to have Dr. Sikowitz here with us today. I would now like to open it up for discussion with Dr. Fogelman and Dr. Sikowitz. Thank you both. Giselle, it is such a pleasure to, uh, to meet a fellow student. We both got our doctorates at the Graduate Center of City University of New York in social and personality psychology. Uh, but yours was a very circuitous route to get to, uh, to the Graduate Center in New York. So why don't we begin by my asking you a little bit about um, where you were born, if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how many siblings you had and what your parents did and your grandparents. So my father was called Wolf Friedman. He was a businessman. We lived in Czechoslovakia, which was created in 1919 after World War I. It was a town of 20,000 population of combined uh, where, where there were many minorities. There were about 8,000 Jews living in Hus, mostly religious. And there were some people of Ukrainian background and of Hungarian background and of Schwabic background. There was a street in our town which was called Schwab Street, which was Schwabland was in Germany, very near Czechoslovakia. And I don't know how those Schwabs got there. Well, just tell me a little bit about your your, yes, your own my family. Your, your own family. Did you? Um, one of the things you're saying is that there were all kinds of different uh, nationalities there living. And together. did you go to a school that yes. that had all kinds of different uh, children there? I'll tell you about the school. There was a unitary school in Hust. First of all, since this area where I lived never, never belonged to, uh, never had any Czech people living there. And now it was Czechoslovakia. So they had imported from Czechia uh, a few hundred Czech families, including teachers and people who were working in the government offices, because they were the only ones who knew Czech. And then we learned from kindergarten on, we spoke Czech and we learned the Czech language. And the Jewish people had schools for the boys. 
for the Jewish boys. I'm now talking about the Jewish population. Yes, but not so. There were no Jewish day schools for girls, just for no, the boys. No, only for the so boys. You went to like it a was Haders, and the school was a public school, and they had all the kinds of kids: the Ukrainian, the Hungarian, and the and the Jewish learning together, boys and girls. And did you experience uh, anti-Semitism from some of the kids? Not there. But there always was anti-Semitism. Now let me tell you about this because this is important. Our people, our fathers, my father was a very religious Jew. From age eleven, he was sent out of the of the city to a yeshiva, to a rabbinical school, where they learned about the Torah. They learned the Jewish law, and he was very knowledgeable in it and very serious about it. Always, when we had business, my father was a businessman, and there was a countertop behind the, the cash register. There was always an open book where he studied. We studied Jewish texts, wow. Not only Jewish texts. He also was a Zionist, and he and a very ardent, loving, person who dreamed of getting to Palestine, to wow. Israel, wow. to Eretz Israel. Wow. And he and wanted, can I tell you this little thing? Sure. And he obtained a so-called uh, certificate which would allow him to take his children and wife, his family, to, to Israel. And he went to my mother and he said, uh, you, would you like to take, would you want us to take our children to Israel now? Because I obtained a certificate which would enable us to go to mandate, to British, British mandate Palestine. Palestine. And my mother said, no, we have it so good here. Why should we leave now? Mm. We have everything we want. We have good businesses and we live nicely. And she said, and Israel is a very difficult country to live in now. Yeah, so right now we're, we're talking about uh, 1930, the beginning oh, of the 1930s. Much earlier. Oh, even much earlier. Much earlier. I, don't remember this. Uh-huh. Because you were born in 1927, so it might have been before, much, you, before you were born. But this is a lost opportunity. Yes, absolutely. And my father was so loving. You cannot even... I have to tell you this. He wore a beard and regular clothes, you know, like a businessman, whereas the other people wore different kind of clothes. But... That's how we lived. We had two businesses, and um, uh, a, a man with three big synagogues. And my father was praying in one of the synagogues, where most of the people were of his religious status. And they would never think of going to a movie. Movie house. Right. We went to the movie, every movie there was when we grew up to that age. 
but my father, no. But he did go to the movies one time in his life. Wow. And he wasn't ashamed in his beard and his, and his hair. He walked into the movies. So why what did he come to the movies then? Because there was a movie about the world famous, famous, famous uh, uh, canter. To this day, he has, there are people who believe that he was the best ever in Jewish history. His name was Yosser Rosenblatt. Oh, yes. And the picture was of Yosser Rosenblatt sitting on a little boat on the Lake of Galilee, the Kinele, oh, wow. in a cylinder. He was a very short man. And, and he was riding on his boat on the Kinele. And he was interested, not in hearing the, he loved cantorial music and we always sang in my house all kinds of songs. But what he wanted to see is Israel and the Lake of Galilee, the Kinneret. Wow. And the, what is it called that we occupied now? That we, the Golan Heights? The Golan Heights. And, at that time, I don't even know whether it was known, but he went to see Eretz Israel. There was no literature, there were no books about Israel. This is where he could see it, really. He had a beautiful, beautiful vision of what uh, he wanted. That was one thing. And he tried to introduce philosophers with us and tell us about Zionism. And my sister, I had two sisters. There were three children, three girls in our family. I was the youngest one. And they were teenagers and they were busy with their things. <laughs> they were not very interested in philosophy and in Zionism. My, my mother's tongue was Hungarian because my mother came from an area of Carpato roots where we lived. But there was more Hungarian spoken than in my town. So she brought Hungarian and we spoke Hungarian to her. And we spoke in Yiddish to my father. And he forbade us to talk on Shabbat, Shabbat, Holy Shabbat, to talk on Shabbat, Hungarian. No. So Shabbat was for Yiddish. So we were, but we didn't want to do it because we spoke among ourselves in Hungarian. Right. So we were quiet. <laughs> Wow. So, but, as a child, you already knew uh, you already knew three uh, three languages. And tell us a little bit about uh, what happened when World War II started, September one, nineteen thirty nine. That's when uh, that's when your area, the Hungarians, took it over. It wasn't then. It started in nineteen thirty eight when Hitler got very involved in Czechia, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And in March of 1939, they marched into the Czech Republic, Czechia, the westernmost part of Czechoslovakia. Right. We, were, we were on this end of Czechoslovakia, and this was Czechia. <clears throat> and Hitler moved in. And the Czech army waited for 
them to move to, to occupy us, but didn't shoot one single bullet on the SS. Wow. And so he, Czechia got occupied, Czechoslovakia fell apart. The, the land, the beautiful democratic <clears throat> Czech Republic fell apart. And the Slovakian part of it want declared independence. They don't want to mix with Czechia anymore. And Czechia was occupied by the Nazis. And Karpatorus, which was on the easternmost part, that was, was the most primitive, most poor part of the land. We were, this I remember, 1939 March, the Hungarian army moved in mm. to Hus, and they wore Hungarian uniforms with a big feather in their cap. And my father and we were standing on the main street, which was called Masaryk Street, and the army, the Hungarian army marches in, and my father is crying with tears. And we didn't understand what that meant. But we knew it was something. My father was born 1895, five years before the turn of the century. Right. And he lived through the Hungary, through World War One. Yes. And what he experienced from the Hungarians because there was a Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian empire that occupied the land, and they were anti-Semitic. What he experienced, he didn't tell us. But I knew that this was something very bad that he experienced, because he cried when the Hungarians walked in. Now, um, and our, our life changed very radically. How did your life change when the Hungarians took over? Okay. Uh, first of all, maybe to tell you a word, maybe I shouldn't stop me if, if it's not necessary. The Hungarians uh, went to Hitler to ask him, could they be his partners? What do they call it? The, an alliance. They formed yes, an alliance. alliance. But, uh, the, Axis. The Axis. The Axis. They wanted to be part of the Axis. That's country, right. Like Italy, like Mussolini. Right. And Hitler said, by all means, and please settle. You may settle. Karpatorus, where we live, part of Slovakia, part of Yugoslavia, part of Romania, Transylvania. And they became rulers, part of his. Axis countries. Yes. And they, but they allowed for us to stay in our homes in Carpatrus where we had lived. Okay, that's how it started. Now, so Hitler is officially part of the part of this um, anti Semitic. Uh, country, and, uh, and we are staying there. 
This was at the beginning of 1939. And, and September 1939, Hitler uh, came into, uh, into Poland, into the main, what's the capital? Yes, he occupied Poland. Poland and started World War II. Two. Okay. And with World War II, he, he went up to the Lithuania, Latvia, and all around Europe, east, south, west, occupied every land, took all the Jews from these lands that he occupied, took them to Auschwitz and so on. And we are still living in our homes. It was terrible because now, now I'll tell you what we went through. Yes. In this little time, five years were we living in our fascistic Medina, fascistic country. Now, what happened? The first thing that they, the city announced is that the kids can go back to the school. Now it's going to be Hungarian school. So we go one day, the next day we go to school. We sit down on a seat, somebody throws a little crumpled paper into my bag. I tell you about anti-Semitism because yes. you mentioned yes, and throws something in my bag. It falls down, I pick it up, a little piece of paper from a notebook. It says, death to the Jews mm -hmm. in Hungarian. It wow, that must have been so scary. I mean, no, it was not. I threw it down. I didn't make anything of it. In that wonderful, wonderful Czechoslovakia, which was democratic and Jew-loving, and, and the people like my father with, with eyeglass and uh, in the beard, and morning and night, getting up, running to shoot to Davan to, to pray. Yeah, to pray. With all that, we anti-Semitism. What? Always since I remember, we had a business. The business was you walked in from the street, and this was the business. And we lived on above this business was our beautiful apartment, and downstairs was a beautiful, uh, a big big um, store. That's a, no, uh, this uh, is a, a backyard, a backyard, and a toilet. And in in this nice nice place, uh, no, what was? What was I? You were about the anti-Semitism that yes. you were experiencing. My, we had a business where people would come in. They would bring in, for instance, the Ukrainian people lived in the villages in the mountains, Carpathian Mountains, beautiful, beautiful places. And in the winter, they would cut down trees. That was the only industry that Carpathians had, cutting down trees cutting down huge, big, fat trees, tying up maybe seven, eight trees together to make them into a raft. 
and one of the Ukrainian people who cut them down stood on it and he had a big stick and he kept it. they put it on a river. We had two big rivers coming down from the mountains into Khost. And that's what this ferry was delivered to because in Khost they had trucks waiting for them and they took them to sawmills where they, they cut them up. Cut okay, them up. so wh- why are you telling this? Why am I because oh, those and it was winter and we had very severe winters and little Ukrainian kids, so I don't know what other kids were in the street because their homes were cold because they no, were but also cold. those people who came with the loggers. Yes. The loggers came and they would come to your father's business. And they came and they got the snow was falling and it was raining and they were standing. Totally, totally snow with on that for I don't know how many hours it took to come down. But that was one thing. They came and they came into my father's business. And, and what like, was your father's business? Okay, it was like a, um, a weird house. A, a warehouse? No, no like no. an inn. Uh, oh, an inn. Yes, they came in and they asked for a shot of whiskey. Because they were frozen. Right, so your your father had an inn on the first floor. and uh, a regular store. Right. Okay, I'm talking about the little kids who, when it wasn't snowing, or when it wasn't snowing, when somebody, a Jew, like, dressed like my father and looking like my father, passed on the street, those little kids were were just walking in the street. They had no place to be. And my father, and they would shut out. They would cry out. Uh, Here goes a, uh, a, a, a stinky Jew. Mm-hmm. And my father would, this I remember clearly. My father would go out on other days when he wasn't walking on the street. He was in the business. And he's Step down two steps into the street, looked into the street, and called out to the boys, come sit inside, swarm in the business. I don't have many people now. Sit down and sit there because it's nice and warm. He gave him a piece of bread. He poured him a, a, a cup of tea. And the kids were sitting there. And still... He was the stinky juice. Mm. He was the stinky juice forever. So you're asking me, what does it say to me if he says death to the Jews? That same kid who was sitting there and asked by my father to sit there to protect him from the cold was to him the stinky juice forever. I don't rem- I didn't remember it well, but this is part of my heart. This is how I grew up, how we grew up. Way before the Nazis came to take it. Okay. So I am sitting in the class room and the teacher comes in. Totally like uh, nonchalant. Nonchalant. I forgot about. Death to the Jews. It wasn't meaningful to me. 
<coughs> the teacher comes in and makes a big, big baruch haba to them, you know, welcome. welcome. And now we are going to be in a Hungarian school, and you all know a little bit Hungarian, at least uh, Hungarian, and it will be so nice. And looks around and smiles and smiles and smiles. And suddenly she says, like this, where are the Jewish children? I don't see them. Because we were all together, all together. And, and then she goes like this, and she stands up, and we stand up, the Jewish children. Now, a word about the Jewish children. The Jewish boys start their education at age three. Right. When they start the Arabic. Yes. And they learn this. <coughs> they do this in a so-called cheder. Cheder means a room. But cheder is like a kindergarten. Yes. But they learn the alphabet right away. The ABC in Hebrew. What? The ABC in ABC Hebrew. Is the alphabet, yes. And about, I don't know, 8 o'clock or 8, so whenever it was that they had to come to school because they had to attend school. Whenever they had to come to school, they came to school, took off, first thing they had to do, take off their, their skull, caps. skull caps and sit there with their side locks and the girls and the boys and, and there they are. There we are. And then when the teacher sees us all standing up, there may have been 50, 40, 50 kids in a classroom. Mm. It wasn't, you know, elite school. Right. And then the teacher says, oh, okay, here you are. Now I see you. There is a door. There you see the door, yes. Please go out like single file to that door. And as we are walking out to that door, the teacher doesn't forget to say loud and clear, she says to us, and don't forget that from now on, Jewish children will not have any education at all. So your education stopped at the age of 12? Yes. Wow. And what what did you do from that time till uh, uh, well, this was till this was when I was twelve years old and we were a little bit sad and people like my parents, the people who who could afford it, hired a teacher uh -huh. for kids of the same age. And we learned a little bit and we passed some tests. But this whole education was based on a very funny formula. We didn't go to elementary school and then high school and then college. You know, that's what you would know. Yes, right. right? I would know that because there was no high school for us. Our school consisted of a, and this was well planned in the whole area. We studied four or five, could be sometimes four, sometimes, but it doesn't make a difference. Elementary schools, and we learned very nicely. 
we had a lot of composition writing, a lot of arithmetic. I learned very nicely until I learned, until age 12. Okay? And, uh, uh, but it was four or five elementary schools. And we learned a little bit Ukrainian and a little bit German. Foreign languages already. We learned very, very early because the population spoke it. Right. It was necessary. And, um, okay. And then came four other classes in which we continued. Same way, same things. On a regular level, we were normal children of normal intelligence, all of us. And then it was over. Why? Because the parents were poor and they needed for the children to go to work. And when they were 14, that was a good time to go to work. They went to learn a uh, trade. Trade, right. And did you go to work at that age? No. no. Let me tell the rest of the story. One day, about, I don't know, a month or so, a few weeks after I was kicked out of school, a man showed up in my store. He was decently dressed. He wanted to talk to my father. I happened to be in the store with my father. We, we went in to be with him there. And he talked to my father. And then the bottom line was, and I would like to stay in this place, he said. No, he said that. I just came from City Hall and they sent me here. And uh, I would like to stay here. My father is listening to him and smiles. And she says, of course, please. Here you have it. Right. That was the big, other big trauma. My father helped him a little bit. He asked to be helped, to show him how to sell. This man, well, I don't know what he did in his life before. He certainly didn't know how to be a businessman. Right, so your father lost his inn and he lost... Uh, everything. everything that was ours is his now. Yeah. And he came down and a few days later, he said to us, some children, I want to talk to you. Told us, my mother, and he says, we have no more income. Parnassa. Mm. No more Parnassa. And I was 12, 13 years old. And I understood totally well. And I said, who's going to put bread on our table? I'm not talking about nice fancy food and helping out students of the yeshiva giving them meals once right. a week and other, uh, other uh, uh, charitable things that we did to other people. Every Friday night, my father would bring home, he might every Shabbos night, it didn't happen every Shabbos night, but he might every Shabbos night almost. A man came with my father home on Friday night from Shul, from the synagogue, where he got stuck. He was from a village, he 
who knows? Nobody knew exactly why he was stuck in that shoe. Right. But you ask the man who is not a regular in the shoe, you ask him, where are you from? And he says, I'm from that and that village. What are you doing? I was stuck here. Do you have where to eat supper, dinner? No. So come. And when he didn't come, my mother asked what happened. No more guests on Friday night. It was a nice, this, is, this tells you how Jews lived there. And there well, but particularly, particularly your family, you had a father who was very... Uh, no, no, no. This was, it was a very custom. common, very common. A custom. So we lived there, very nicely. Everything was fine. And what happens now when, this, when the, suddenly the government began... Every store in the center of town was in the hands of Jews. Why? I have to tell you this. Because Jews from the Middle Ages on, or maybe even before that, were forbidden to acquire land. Right. The land belonged to the landlords. Right. And the peasants would, uh, would work the land. Work the land and got paid for it. Then. <clears throat> so this is how life went. And one day the Hungarian fascistic government began demanding back from every storekeeper his license to operate the business. And everybody closed the door. No more Jewish stores opened. Very few were taken uh, away, like this guy took away our business. Not every business was asked for by, by, by non-Jews. And I said, how do other people live? I mean, we don't have a parmesan. But what happens to the other storekeepers? They also have children. Right, nobody can make a living anymore. Black market, I was told. That I didn't know yet. I didn't understand the concept. They started doing black, black, black market. They were intercepted by the police with the black market. They were uh, incarcerated. There were many, many Jewish people in, in that prison. Right, because of the black market. And what happened when the? Unfortunately, I know you have a lot more to say about the about the childhood and and certainly the, the childhood was lovely until until the Hungarians came. Until the Hungarians yeah, took over, we had older sisters. And tell us a little bit about what happened when the uh, when the Germans uh, came okay. in okay. in March of 1944. Okay, five years we were living in our homes without an income. And we heard, but vaguely, because a newspaper would not write about it, uh, that, uh, that the Jews were taken away from here and here and here, from everywhere. And we are still at home. And we heard much later on, after the war, I heard at the, uh, 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 Yomar, Smart, not 
On a, on Israel's a, Independence Day? Yeah. No, no, no. Yom Hashoah. Uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. I heard from Benjamin Netanyahu. I heard from Liva Rivlin, the president, that Hitler at that point, he remembered that particular time when Jews were allowed to live in their homes. But, but we were actually prisoners yeah. in our homes. Yeah. And uh, how angry Hitler was that the Hungarians actually did not allow the Nazis to come in to take the Jews. Mm. You probably know this, but this was very strange. And we were living, having black market. My parents went to the, to the, uh, no, hoteliers. There were two hotels. My mother and father were friends with them. You know, we davened together. They're friends. They're Jews like we are. And they said, look, we have a nice apartment. We have three bedrooms, a lot of beds. Uh, you will probably get a lot of tourists here who never saw mountains like the Carpathian Mountains. And when you get an overflow of, of guests, you can send them to us and we have, we will provide beds. And that's how it was. And we had, you know, a staircase that led from the store to our apartment. So here above the stairs, we hung something, a curtain from the ceiling down. This is where we were sleeping mm. on mattresses or I don't know, on floor. I don't know. Our three bedrooms weren't about to people who came as tourists. And they liked our apartment. And we had a non-Jewish, a Christian woman who was always our laundress. Every week she took our laundry, washed it, ironed it, uh, made it, what do you call it? Ironed it, oh, everything, yeah. underwear, pajamas, everything was ironed beautifully. And that's how she, she, uh, and she now came every day because she had to change the beddings. And my mother cooked. And to me, a little bit of my show. This is when I first time realized that I am in a terrible situation. I was ashamed to tell my friends. Everybody did black market. Everybody had a parnasa. Their children, they had to feed the children. Right. So this is a very difficult thing. One day, Hitler got real angry. He invited, so I was told now, these days, he invited the uh, Hungarian ruler, whose name was Nicholas Horthy, and he was a bad kid, was a bad boy, because yes, he, he didn't listen to Hitler, and he didn't let the Jews to be taken away. And so one day Hitler invited him to his beautiful place, 
maybe on Ionic, and dined and wined him and called up in the same time, called up on the Hungarian fascists who occupied the, the military. No, 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 the government. Yeah, the government. The, uh, what do you call it? Well, they, they were they, the Arrow Cross. They were the, they, the Hungarian Nazis. Yeah, they were the fascists. Yes. And today they have them, and then they had them, and they, he called them up and said, just open up the gates to Hungary for the Germans. And they did. In came the Germans, the Nazis. And we knew this is the end. And the same time they made the uh, so-called Judenrat. And uh, they were their, our friends. They were the same Jews that we were. They were under the same terrible black cloud. What's going to happen now to us? But they also took from the, our Jewish leaders, they took, I don't know, 50 or how many ever, made the Judenrat and made them into their uh, emissaries. That's an elegant word. That you are using. Right. Shiki English. We call it Shiki They send them to ask the Jews to give them their, their candlesticks, the silver and the gold and whatever they have. Can you tell us a little bit about being yes. the Porter Couch? I am at the point now when the Nazis come in. It is uh, March something. 1944. 1944. Now, the, the important thing that happened at that point, I told you my father was a Zionist. Yes. Other Zionist. He decided to send the two girls, my two sisters, who were like 16 and 19, 20, to Budapest to learn a trade. Because he said, we will eventually arrive to Palestine, to Israel. And the girls haven't learned anything, nothing. So they have to learn something. So they sent them to Budapest. They said, you rent yourself a, a two beds with a lady and uh, learn, learn something, a trade, and then uh, that's it. So you will be learned. And I stayed at home with my parents. So, and we are full of anxiety now because the Germans are upon us. And we don't know what's going to happen. So they and three weeks from today, from the day that the Germans arrive, is going to be Pesach, Passover, the holiday of Passover. Three weeks. So my father sends a telegram. We didn't have telephones at that time. And we sent a telegram, come home right away for Pesach. No. He sent a telegram to the sisters, come home, because it's a custom to have children who are away studying or doing something 
to come home for the, to be together for that big holiday evening, the ceremony of Passover, of going away from escaping uh, Egypt. Okay, so they wrote back, sent back a telegram: "We are coming." They were prepared. They heard what happened, and they are agreed to come home. What happened when my sister went down that afternoon? My sister goes out of the house and uh, she goes to the railway station, local railway station, to ask, are the trains running as usual so that we can read the, 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 the schedule and go take a suitcase and go on? When she gets there, she says there are, she sees there are a lot of Jewish people there coming with the same question. Are the trains running as they should? Who are these people? People who lost their livelihood, lost their businesses, lost their livelihood, lost their jobs, they have nothing to give their children. So they run to Budapest. Why? Because it's easier to live among many, many non-Jews than to live in a small town where every boy knows every Jew and they can denounce them to the police or it's difficult to live in a small town. So they ran and now they want to go home for Pesach. And so uh, the police hears about the... the Hamonim about the many Jews there, and they come down to the railway station, take everybody. And there is not far, I don't know where it is actually, a concentration camp, which used to be an old um, prison. And they set this prison aside for the Hungarian Jews. When they come, and we'll have to put them somewhere. This is where the Hungarian Jews will come. And they took everybody, including my 19-year-old sister. And they are in incarcerated. And my other sister, Artie, was only 16, 17. And she was devastated because she is not coming home from the railway station, she went to get information. She didn't know what happened. She opened the radio and she sees that there was a raid by the police and she, she knew that something happened and she knew that my sister was already not free. Mm -hmm. And what is she going to tell my parents? Mm -hmm. So from then on, she doesn't say a word to the parents. She doesn't see. She doesn't send a telegram. My father is sending telegrams every day. Are you ready? Are you prep? Are you packing? Do you have the suitcases? Do you know when? You know, it's a father. And uh, she doesn't answer. Two days later, we get an open letter and it has the stamp of of this concentration camp. And my sister writes in her own handwriting, which we know, 
I am here and I'm fine. I have everything. Don't worry about me because I have, I don't lack anything. But we know she's alive, thank God. But we know she's under the hands of the Germans. She's 19 years old. So, and Pesach is already a week away, not much. And we keep sending messages to my other sister and she doesn't love And there is like a real black cloud. Nobody, a black cloud. Nobody is on the street. Neither Jews nor non-Jews. We're afraid, all afraid of the Germans. And Pesach is getting closer. And I have to tell you now the story of Erev Pesach of the day before, the eve. The eve. We don't know what's happening out there. We don't know what's happening to my older sister who is incarcerated and what's happening to, to her younger sister who doesn't write to us and we don't know what her plans are. And we are looking forward to the Pesach Eve when we have the whole family together. So on Pesach morning, of course, as you probably know, the men, the religious men, are uh, all, uh, all get up early in the morning, I don't know whether it's six or seven o'clock, everybody has his own custom, and goes to the synagogue to pray together. Everybody who is uh, worthy of it, meaning he has have, had to have the bar mitzvah, he is past 13 years old, yes. and he goes to pray, shacharis, the morning prayers. And my father leaves, and my mother gets up early to get ready for the big... Uh, uh, big festive meal. It's not the meal, it's the agadah. Right, right. But your mother was preparing the food. Not only the food, right. everything, the maror and the, you know, all the things. Right. And about 10 o'clock or so, maybe 11 o'clock, she says to me, I am with her, I am around her. She's in the kitchen. And she says, I'm very nervous. Go look for your father because he didn't come home yet. And it's late. He left a long time ago. So I go. And I go through the three synagogues. And everything is locked. Nobody there anymore. I guess the people finished the prayers and went home. Nobody wants to be out. We don't know what could happen. And I passed everything. Nobody on the street. And I come back and I step in front of the house where if my father, when my father will come home from wherever he is, not a moment did I worry about him. He's a, a very responsible person. And I step at a place where he must pass and see me before he goes in, and then we'll go in together, and mother won't be nervous anymore. And after a long time, I see somebody is getting on the sidewalk on which I was standing, 
and a male that I see, that I cannot identify him, he comes close straight to me because he identifies me. Comes close and looks very sad and very different. Why did I identify his profile? He's my father. Okay. He doesn't have a beard. Mm. And he wears a cap, not a hat, like the religious people wear black hats. A cap, a cap, okay. And he looks very, very sad. And we go in together into the kitchen. My mother is preparing. Thank God that you came home. We sit down and we start crying in the kitchen, looking out into the backyard to see when somebody else is coming from Budapest. And we're crying there. There's nothing to do. My mother is preparing. And suddenly in the afternoon, maybe two o'clock or one o'clock, my sister, Arti, my the middle sister, is arriving with two suitcases, puts it down, comes through the side, through into the backyard, and we run out from the kitchen. They built for my mother a little, they called it a summer kitchen in the backyard because our apartment was two stories high and my mother used to go into the store to help my father. But it was hard for her to walk the steps up and down. So they built a little kitchen in the side, in the backyard. And there we are watching and she arrived, my sister. We ran out to her, my father, so there she is, I don't know who helped her to come from the train with the suitcases. Maybe she hired someone, I don't remember this. But my father throws herself, himself on his stomach, on the tree, on the floor, holds her legs and says, thank God that at least you are with us now. Mm -hmm. And then we take her in, and the evening comes, and my mother is well prepared, and we are reading the Agadah, and I forgot it all. I have total amnesia of what happened on that Seder uh, uh, night. On that night. Last week, Sunday, last Sunday, I spoke in Yad Vashem to 400 religious teachers, women teachers of religious schools. Wow. In Yad Vashem, they have a, like a theater, was full, full, full. I was told 350 teachers, there were 400 occupied every seat and I'm very happy they have this ceremony but not exactly like it every year and so anyway and I when I told and a lot of the, these women 
came to the podium to talk to me and to tell and ask more questions. They were surrounding me and said, why 